This podcast from Teacher is supported by Ysoft B3D ED, a safe and easy to use 3D printing solution for education. Hello, and thank you for downloading this Research Files podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Jo Earp. The topic for this episode is something we've had a lot of requests for, trauma-informed education practices. Studies show that exposure to trauma in childhood is widespread. My guest today is Dr Emily Berger, an educational and developmental psychologist at Monash University here in Melbourne. Uh, We'll be talking about some of the terminology, the benefits of trauma-informed practice in schools for all students, and different approaches to creating trauma-informed classrooms. There'll also be some specific advice relating to bushfire incidents, so keep listening. Emily, welcome to the research files. So let's start off with the terminology then. What do we mean by the term childhood trauma? There's various terms for childhood trauma. So you might hear terms such as developmental trauma, complex trauma, uh, adverse childhood experiences. So ACEs is another common term. So adverse childhood experiences have probably been studied the most in the research and they would refer to things such as child abuse and neglect. Uh, and also things such as household challenges. So household challenges could be exposure to a parent with a mental illness, uh, exposure to uh, separation of family or substance abuse in families. And then, as you mentioned before, in terms of the bushfires, it can include things such as exposure to bushfires. Uh, Really, trauma is an event or an occurrence that can lead to psychological distress among young people that can be short-term or it could be longer-term, leading to intrusive thoughts about the event or a perceived danger that there's danger to themselves or to other people as a result of the event. And that's really what trauma is. Uh, It's an event that can impact people differently. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned there about some of the effects of the trauma. Um, I'm thinking particularly sort of K to 12 sphere. Mm. Uh, They sort of manifest themselves in different ways according to different age groups or is it really just an individual thing? It it can definitely be an individual thing. Uh, I think in terms of how it manifests though, you might see things such as uh, regressive behaviours in the younger children. So things such as clinginess, trouble sleeping, trouble eating, um, maybe bedwetting in the younger ones and then in the older ones uh, again the intrusive thoughts ruminating thoughts which I guess makes it really relevant for schools particularly because that's where you can see trouble learning trouble concentrating uh, because a child's fight or flight stress response is is in overactivation, uh, meaning that their brain isn't processing information in the same way and and so that's where you get the trouble concentrating and this is why schools I guess care so much about this issue. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference that you can pick up on between those who've who are experiencing childhood trauma, you know, trauma as opposed to just, you know, difficulty concentrating? It's interesting that you say that because it does require um, a bit of a specialist eye mm-hmm. to see that. I, I think what, and when we talk about trauma-informed care, what we ask um, and trauma-informed practice in school, what we ask for teachers to do is to be aware to be aware that this 
may be an issue, this may be a concern. Of course, as you say, concentration issues can be for a range of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so uh, psychologists, and I also work as a psychologist, it's our job to unpack that and communicate with teachers as best we can about what is going on for the child. But it's really, again, trauma-informed practice is about teachers being aware and mindful of these impacts and that trauma may be one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. So we're not expecting people, for for people listening, thinking, well, I've not got the background to to, um, specifically spot that. We're not expecting people to come up with a diagnosis. It's just like you say, being aware and then thinking about what the support's available and the people that you can contact that are available. That's exactly right. It's having a different lens and and looking at the the why for the behaviour and just sort of speculating about why it might be and then reaching out for support if it's from a psychologist, a social worker or someone else that you have, um, particularly at the school, mm-hmm. to be able to give you that extra uh, support and answers about the behaviour and, and support for the family as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned in the intro that this is definitely a topic that we get a lot of requests for. Mm. And I've noticed that it's gained traction, if you like, over the last few years, uh, trauma-informed practice in schools and the interest in that and the request for support in that area. Um, Is that something that's been happening research-wise then? Is that being driven Uh, by that? Absolutely. Uh, I, I... I can't keep up in terms of the the level of interest and um, absolutely. So it's probably the last, look, I'd probably say about five to ten years Mm -hmm. that it's really started to become of of interest and and particularly there's different models out there which I can talk about that have become more popular and that that schools are are implementing. Uh, We have had resources available though for the past almost 20 years. So there's Karma Classrooms resources, that's one example of a resource for example, that have been available for for almost 20 years now. But I would say the last five years particularly, research has really started to to ramp up to the point that it's difficult to, to keep up with. Okay then, so um, what are the benefits of adopting trauma-informed practice in schools? Yeah, Uh, the benefits are um, are wide-ranging. So uh, part of my research and and my team that I work with at Monash University, we're really looking at how trauma-informed practice can be beneficial you know, in under what circumstances in terms of for children, but also for teachers and school staff, but also for parents. So, uh, for example, uh, a recent uh, review that I did of trauma-informed practice in schools revealed that for students particularly, it helped in terms of lowering levels of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, depressive symptoms in students, helping in terms of their school attachments and connectedness um, and school achievement as well. In terms of teachers, it definitely helps with their perceived levels of confidence and knowledge. Part of my research and what I found through uh, the review, which I'm happy to share with you, is that we're not doing enough to understand how this works for teachers and school staff as well, of course, because we're expecting them to deliver these approaches in schools. Uh, And the last group, I guess, to talk about is parents. And that's probably an area where we really don't know how it's working, how we can engage parents and families in a trauma-informed approach within the school, being a part of the school community. Uh, Also, I'd like to say that parents also 
they can also be vulnerable themselves. So it's not just the children who come with a trauma history. It can also be parents who come with a trauma Mm -hmm. history and it can be parents who struggle with attachments and relationships in schools. And that can have flow-on effects for the relationships that children can form in schools and the belonging that children feel in schools. So I feel that parents and carers is another really important area that we as researchers with uh, time and and funding and and research, we can better understand that. Mm -hmm. Is trauma-informed practice good practice for all students, not just those that have experienced trauma? Yeah, look, that's definitely where... I would like to see research moving. The the from a, a psychological perspective, if I can put my psychologist hat on, yes, absolutely. So if we think about trauma-informed practice, trauma-informed practice is about an individualized approach, understanding each child. We know that a child who presents with trauma can look very similar to a child who presents with ADHD and concentration issues, mm-hmm. as we've discussed before, or a child with autism spectrum disorder. So they present with very uh, similar symptoms and concerns, such as difficulty adjusting to changes in routine. So the the principle therefore is that presenting with the similar symptoms and having that individualized approach, therefore you can use a similar approach with all students. And that to me is a trauma-informed approach. Um, Unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot in the research literature because it's it is still such a new area. There hasn't been enough written about how we can actually use those approaches for different students. Right. So Berry Street, uh, the Berry Street group, for example, has written about trauma-informed practice and adjusting it for children with intellectual disability. Uh, and I'm working at the moment on research around adjusting it for children with autism spectrum disorder with the rationale in mind that they present with very similar symptoms and concerns, which is why it's hard for teachers to tease out what's going on. And so therefore we can use very similar approaches. Mm-hmm. So I just want to take a break for a moment at this point and do and discuss a, a, an aside, which is, um, as we're talking today, of course, the bushfires are still burning across Australia. Uh, lives have been lost. Communities and, and ecosystems, of course, have been devastated. Um, I want to discuss specifically then how teachers can support students, colleagues and themselves, obviously, during this period, um, but also down the track. Uh, Now, we've published an article on some of the resources that are available, and uh, we'll put a link uh, to that in this podcast. Um, And you can just go to teachermagazine.com.au, search for the word bushfire, and you'll find that in the archive. Um, The reality of today's media and social media coverage, I guess, is that a lot more people and maybe younger people are exposed to those kinds of images sometimes they're very confronting there's been some very confronting and distressing images how can adults respond to that I've, I've seen some advice about trying to shield children completely for example from media coverage others saying that it's impossible to do you need to be open and honest what, what's your take on that yeah, I think it's a, a really important topic and, and and something worthwhile talking about today. I guess I have a few a few thoughts about it and and I and, and number one it's about listening. Um, listening first and, and talking second as, as a parent or as an adult when you're mm-hmm. talking to young people and listening to young people about these issues. Listening out for Uh, anything that they say that makes you think that they're thinking about these issues or or particularly if they're ruminating about these issues if if there's constantly um, they're constantly bringing up issues or comments related to say the bushfires for example or or other you know adversities related to the the bushfires every 
child and student will have a different reaction. Uh, research has found that uh, children can have a reaction from being quite distressed, obviously, either immediately or, or sometime after as well. That's important to keep in mind that it can be a delayed mm -hmm. response. But also research shows that children can actually be resilient mm -hmm. to these sorts of events uh, and actually experience growth and flourishing uh, following these sorts of events because they learn about themselves and they learn about their competencies and, and what they can do and what they can achieve. Um, when we're talking to children about these these sorts of events when they're seeing things, it is important to find a nice middle ground of uh, being being honest with them, but also being hopeful about uh, the response of emergency services, the community, uh, being realistic with them about what they can do to help. So helping them navigate away if they're wanting to help in some way, navigating a way that they can help. Again, being honest, but also being hopeful uh, that there are services out there and and teams out there that are out there to support us. Always remembering that the ruminating thoughts for a child might continue. So always being on the lookout and being open and opening up space and time to have these conversations as well is really important. On a high, a higher fire risk day, for example, uh, where the school remains open, uh, yeah. you may have some students concerned about that. Um, and And just to point out the support, I guess, and the systems in place. Is, is that right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So again, um, you know, it's that approach of being being honest. Uh, kids are very perceptive. They, mm -hmm. they know what's going on, particularly if they live in these high fire danger areas. They're very perceptive. Uh, we've done some work with um, with, with children in, in our research and, and what they're saying is they want um, they want people to be open and transparent. They want space and time to be able to speak about their concerns. Uh, but at the same time, we do need to be hopeful because we do find that children, particularly the younger children, can misinterpret either how much they can support other people and so they feel a lot of pressure themselves that they should right. be doing more or they can misinterpret the level of danger and so they can see a high uh, fire warning day for example and misinterpret that as it's it's right on their back doorstep right. so we've got to as adults provide them with that balanced perspective in terms of the danger and again what they could do to help mm. and the context as well it just reminds me of something that was in the article that we did which I'd not really thought about which was that a lot of younger children can misinterpret say for example when they see um, a replay of something on tv of a bushfire they, they might think oh that, that's a new incident so things as simple as that isn't it absolutely absolutely and and seeing the news and thinking that you know these events are uh, are continuing and 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 ongoing yeah mm -hmm. absolutely Okay, so let's move on then to creating a trauma-informed classroom. There are five principles, aren't there, of trauma-informed care, as I understand? Uh, yeah, so when I wrote the article that you're referring to, my aim was to look at some of the more, uh, if I could say, popular uh, models of trauma-informed practice and pull them together in terms of what are the commonalities between those approaches. So I looked at the BRACE model, the ARC model and the Berry Street education model uh, in terms of trauma-informed practice. And they were models that were represented as well in the recent review that I did of trauma-informed practice approaches. And so pulling those together into 
as as you say, those five principles. It's really worthwhile mentioning as well that there are other uh, people working. I know there's a team in Western Australia as well that they're working on principles at ten principles of trauma informed practice in schools. So there's a lot of uh, different ideas about how we label these areas or how we describe these areas. My aim through doing this this research and through doing the article was to look across those three approaches and pull them together and say, well, these are the commonalities. Uh, so the five principles uh, that were pulled together for the article were family belonging, collaboration and engagement, school belonging, collaboration and engagement, uh, focusing on emotions and emotion regulation, consistency and routine, and that's one that's been spoken about a lot in schools, and then um, building choice and student empowerment. So coming up, we'll be finding out more about the principles of trauma-informed care and those five principles with Dr Emily Berger. But first, here's a quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine. Supported by Ysoft B3D ED. 3D printing brings classroom lessons to life. ED lets students print 3D models safely under school usage controls without requiring teacher supervision. Ready to use 3D lesson plans are included in B3D Academy. Special education bundle pricing is now available. Visit Ysoft.com forward slash 3D education today. So going through those five principles that you used in your article then one by one, the first you talked about there is family belonging, engagement and attachment. So that collaboration of parents, educators and so on to really create some consistency, if you like, for the student. Um, and that sense of safety is important, isn't it? Different children will have different triggers um, that provoke that kind of fight or flight response. But mm. what are some of the common ones? I, I've seen a range of things, both through you know through my research, but also through working as a psychologist. It could be things such as uh, a teacher raising their voice. Uh, it could be things such as a door being closed to the classroom so students feeling that they don't have control over the situation and can't escape as you say fight or flight is all all about I'm either going to stay here and fight or I'm going to flee and is there something in my way that's stopping me from fleeing the situation so teachers are raising their voice or a door being uh, closed uh, to the classroom it can be changes in routine that's probably a really big one and that's mm -hmm. a part of the principles of course that we'll talk about um, having consistency in the approach not only consistency across home in school, but also consistency in terms of how the teachers actually respond to students, do, doing as you say you're going to do for these students. So not changing the rules halfway through for students. That's all about this approach of consistency and collaboration. Mm -hmm. Now, the second important principle is uh, being engaged with school. So having a strong attachment there and a sense of belonging. Um, we've covered OECD research, which suggests that uh, for some students, a sense of belonging indicates their educational success um, and it's also a good indicator of long-term health and well-being. Uh, why is this important for those that have experienced trauma then? Mm. Uh, I think it comes back to uh, 
your point about safety and security, um, we can think about when we feel out of control or we feel nervous about a situation, we'll want to control the situation. And it's exactly the same for students as well. So uh, you know, having a connectedness with the school means that you can have some control as well. Um, so relationships and connections. It's important to keep in mind that relationships and connectedness take time with these mm -hmm. students. And that's something I always try to remind teachers about, that to create a connection with students who have experienced trauma, because they do tend to sometimes have distrust of other people and distrust of the school system or distru distrust of teachers, that it does take time to develop those and that's all through uh, being consistent doing as you say you're going to do um, responding in a way that you know is going to be individualized and is going to work for that student mm -hmm. for secondary teachers I'm thinking they're seeing different students all the time aren't they? it's not like a primary teacher who may have one class and they can work with those students regularly yeah. are, are there any sort of not not instant tips because it's not as easy as that, but no, what kind of things should teachers be looking at then to build that connectedness? I um, I think connectedness with parents mm -hmm. and carers is really important. I think that going back to that first uh, principle of collaborating with with parents and and having a connection with parents and carers, teachers to parents and carers is really important. That helps to build a sense of trust in the student um, in, in the school. If parents are showing trust in the school, then students will show trust and, and faith in the school. Also having, again, that consistent approach across home and across school, uh, having parents support and show faith in teachers, I think is really important. And that helps the student then to have faith as well in what's happening at school. It is, it is very hard. Uh, teachers are dealing with students who come with a history that they don't necessarily have control over and they don't have control over the history of the children, let alone the parents as well. So it can be challenging to develop those connections with the parents, with the students. Uh, and that's what I always like to say to, to teachers, to develop goals with students and goals for students that are also achievable and meet the child where, where they're up to. Right. Uh, and having those achievable goals allows the child and the teacher to experience success with the child. Through experiencing success, both the teacher and the child can then develop a more collaborative, positive relationship rather than a negative relationship and having it be negative. So it is about goal setting and goal setting is about protecting the 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 health, I guess, of the student, but also uh, helping the teacher to feel more uh, positive about those interactions. Mm -hmm. uh, so number three, then, this one's all about emotions, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So because of the dysregulated flight or fight stress response of students who have experienced trauma, uh, they can have dysregulated emotions. They can also have problems uh, controlling their impulses as well. So, so they're more impulsive and more likely to act on the impulse coming from what their fight or flight stress response is telling them to do, either stay there and fight or to, to flee the situation, if I can put it that way. So a trauma-informed practice approach is about working, again, collaboratively with the student, but building in individualised approaches within the school that can help a child to recognise their own emotions and mm -hmm. triggers for themselves as well when their emotions might get too high 
strategies within the school for them to deal with those emotions? Do they need to uh, have a red card and take five minutes outside of the classroom? Do they need to go and walk around the school oval a couple of times just, you know, to, to help regulate themselves? Uh, getting a, a child and having the teacher in touch with those emotions of the child and the triggers of the child is really important. Also, trauma-informed practice, uh, the approaches really recommend a child becoming aware of the emotions of other people Mm -hmm. and how their behaviour and their emotions can impact on other people as well. Uh, And so it's through that that a child can develop those emotion regulation skills. Mm -hmm. So really uh, this kind of practice is something that we do with the students rather than to to the students, uh, absolutely. Uh, getting them involved at every level. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next principle then, something I think a lot of educators will be aware of, the importance of consistency. We've mentioned it a few times already today. So predictable routines, things like that. Can you give a few examples of what teachers can do? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I, I think that uh, schools are, are great in terms of routines. It's why uh, sometimes uh, children can cope better at, at school than they can in the home setting because school is much more routine. So we know that routines are really helpful. Routines can be um, classroom routines in terms of first we'll do this, then we'll do this, and then this will happen. So quite often, particularly well in primary schools, they'll have a, a chart in the primary school and it's it's a visual chart as well so that can be helpful for some of the other children Mm -hmm. with some neurodiversity issues and so they have a visual chart that the students can look at at the beginning of the day but also the teacher can refer back to. Uh, Other approaches can be things such as uh, pre-corrective statements where a teacher can remind the students when you enter a classroom, go and sit on the mat. But also for those students, again, remembering this is an individualised approach, for those students who might struggle with that uh, to actually provide a pre-corrective statement, remember we're going to go and sit on the mat. So we'd specifically tell that student, remember, when you walk into the classroom, we're going to go and sit on the mat. We can also verbally um, tell children about their routines. Uh, So uh, I quite often use the language first, next, then. And the then is always the thing that the child wants to do. So sometimes children can become distressed because they're being asked to do something that they don't want to do and they actually would prefer to do another activity. So we can also verbally say, well, first, we're going to do this, then we'll do this, and next. And the next is the part that they really want to do. So the child knows you've heard them, uh, knows that it will happen, uh, that they just need to go through these steps and that they'll get to the desired activity. And again, that comes back to that point about control as well, that the child has been heard and has some control and choice over the situation. Mm Mm-hmm. There are three things there that have popped into my head just while you were speaking. The first one, uh, going back to difference between home and school routine, is that in itself an issue then? The, the differences between, you know, I mean, because the first thing that we talked about was collaborating with parents. So getting them on board with what their normal routine is or things in particular that happen at home that yeah. you may be able to link in with school. Is that something that, that you should be thinking about as well? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that schools and 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 home environments uh, there's there's definitely a, a push and a need for how to communicate and and how to communicate better around what's working at home which might equally work at school and then equally what's working at school might also 
work at home. And so building up whatever approach it is, again, it's an individual basis, but building up whatever approach it is that allows to have that communication between home and school, but also communication about what's working at home, because chances are it's going to work mm-hmm. at school mm-hmm. and, you know, it's it's worth a try. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, uh, the second thing was uh, that the, I'm trying to think about um, the, the first, next, then, and being clear about what's coming up and not having any surprises, if you like. Is that sort of the fear of not knowing then? Is that is that what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So that could be another another trigger, uh, fear of, of, of not knowing what's happening because that's really fear of, of being out, out of control of, of right. the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing was the consistency thing. I just want to go back back to that again and you're saying you know you can um teachers can make clear this is what's going to happen Mm. we all know that in the middle of lessons or sometimes you overrun we've all done it i've done it when i've been teaching you've said we'll do this and you end up not doing it because Mm. you've not got time or you have a late change or something happens in the classroom and what are the consequences then of not following through i i look i think that you know we can't um, we can't foresee every possible consequence or, as you say, every change mm-hmm. in routine. Uh, schools are, are dynamic in terms of uh, routines and what's happening at, at, at that time. For, for me, it's about teachers and, and schools understanding that there's been a change, there's been a shift, and, again, identifying the kids that that might have that might be an issue for and implementing things either just before that change or or after that change knowing that the child is going to need to enact their emotion regulation plan for example if they have an emotion regulation plan Mm -hmm. of how they're going to regulate themselves we actually need to put that into place uh, either before that change because we know there's going to be a change or give the child that five minutes to regulate five to ten minutes to regulate after there's been a change and not expecting the child is going to be able to shift straight away and launch straight in Mm because the story's changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not expecting everything to run smoothly and perfectly. We're not saying that, but we're saying do do everything you can to help support students when that happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's move on then. The final principle is about empowering students and building on their strengths really and then also giving them a voice which we've already mentioned giving them some choice and control over things why is this important and what kinds of things can teachers do I think about this particularly for the older uh, adolescent Mm -hmm. students Um, what's important to them for their education what do they want to get out of their education? Um, What do they value about their education? Um, Is it a particular class or, or, you know, a particular teacher that they really connect in with? How can we build um, that theme of their interest or that particular class or idea? How can we build that into maybe the child's routine? At school, uh, again, understanding that having choice, connection, collaboration is what's going to keep those children grounded at school and keep them engaged with the things that they have to do at school, but also give them opportunities and options to be able to explore areas uh, that are also of interest to them. So it could be as simple as... um, 
you know, uh, changing the way that a child um, completes classwork, for example. It could be uh, changing the way that a child delivers the work. They're still doing the work, but changing the way they deliver the work. Is it through a written piece or through um, an oral presentation, for example, or allowing the child to write about an area of interest to them? Maybe it's an area that they want to go into in terms of, of work and, and, and different career um, opportunities. So, just having that approach of, uh, as I said, working collaboratively and giving them giving them power over their education because it is their education. Mm-hmm. And as we've said before, that sounds like good advice for working with all students, not mm. just those that have experienced trauma. Um, we've talked about some practical examples there for how uh, teachers, we've, we've talked mainly about teachers actually, but, but principals, we need to widen the discussion obviously, a whole school approach, um, can start to look at supporting students who've experienced childhood trauma. So for those schools who want to start looking at embedding this into their practice then, are there resources and frameworks out there that they can follow? You could definitely uh, look at my Teach Space article, which has uh, ideas and resources about those different programs. So the Berry Street Education Model, um, the Attachment Regulation Competency Model, which is the ARC model and there's also the brace model as well there's also as I said the 10 principles which are coming out of research in Western Australia uh, as well Uh, there's models such as the hearts model which I've spoken about in my recent review again I'm happy to share that that resource as well Uh, the hearts model and other models do draw on the ARC model so the attachment regulation competency model so as I said before, a lot of these models uh, are very consistent in what they talk about, which was the reason for my article and trying to pull all these these commonalities and common themes together. Part of my uh, review that I did is also about looking, because I, I agree with you, looking at principles and looking at a whole school approach. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that teachers are supported by a whole school approach. It's not just looking at teachers and what they're doing and, and how how they can improve practice. It's actually looking at a whole school, how, how principals can support teachers through uh, supporting trauma-informed practice approaches in schools, uh, policies as well in schools, what are the policies around trauma-informed practice looking like in schools? Uh, what are mental health professionals in schools? What are they doing, which is something I'm very interested in? And then, as I said, where do we partner with parents and how do we partner with parents? So there's still a lot we need to learn about <laughs> trauma-informed practice. Mm-hmm. And I think we will over the next five years, I think we will learn a lot and then we'll need to learn more. Mm-hmm. As well. As I mentioned, we'll put all the links to the research, the resources, uh, your article, uh, everything that we've mentioned today, we'll put into the transcript of this episode, uh, which will be available at the teachermagazine.com.au site. Emily, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the research files. That was fantastic. Oh, thank you, Joe. That's all for this episode. There are almost 150 teacher podcasts in our archive. If you'd like to listen to more, you'll find us by searching Teacher, A-C-E-R, wherever you get your podcasts from. So that might be on Apple, SoundCloud or Spotify. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to the channel by clicking the purple subscribe button on Apple, the green follow on Spotify or the orange follow on SoundCloud. A reminder that by subscribing, you'll ensure that new podcasts land in your feed as soon as they're available. You'll also get a notification straight to your device, which is really handy for making sure you never miss an episode. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher. 
supported by Ysoft, makers of ED, a safe and easy-to-use 3D printing solution for education.